Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 19th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is using EQ to lead a great sales team. With me is Colleen Stanley, the author of Emotional Intelligence for Sales Leadership. The book is published by HarperCollins. Colleen is the president of Sales Leadership a sales development firm, and is also the author of a previous book, Emotional Intelligence for Sales Success. Salesforce has named Colleen one of the top sales influencers of the 21st century, and she's likewise been named a top 30 global sales guru. Colleen, welcome to the show. Dan, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to it. So just briefly, why don't you give us a top line summary of what your book, your new book is about? The book was really written for VPs of sales, sales directors, or even you know high potentials that are desiring to be sales managers. And it focuses on how do you create an emotionally intelligent sales culture from hiring emotionally intelligent salespeople, teaching those soft skills that can seem very theoretical, and then really taking a look at yourself. Are you modeling the EQ behaviors that really lend to great leadership? Okay. Fair enough. And I, I really like the fact that the book devotes a fully one third of the book, seven chapters to hiring the right people, because if you don't get the right people, it's pretty hard to rectify that later on. Uh, there's so many things I liked about this book. One of them is you mentioned that so often when you're doing the interview, you need to look for that something that's missing, that something to work on. I'm curious, you've been in this field a long time yourself. What is that something that you had to work on? You know, it's interesting. I think I have a lot of natural talents, Dan. However, hiring is not one of them, okay? So I tend to fall in love with candidates. I will rationalize an answer. And so one of the things I had to take a look at is really recognizing you need some assistance when you're getting ready to hire people. So that would be called self-awareness, um, you know, asking for help and having some humility and in, in gaining some additional insights that way. Sure. And was there a particular uh, type of sales candidate that you fell in love with that you shouldn't have repeatedly? Oh, my goodness. And I actually write about it in the uh, book where this gentleman and, you know, from a resume piece and actually we ran the assessments. Right. So I called the paper profile looked good. But he answered one question that I uh, he gave me an answer to a question I asked and I rationalized his answer. And that question was, hey, tell me about the last few business books you've read. What are you doing to stay relevant? And he looked at me and, and Dan, it was just such a charming smile. And he said, well. I've been I've been working so hard and selling so much. <laughs> I haven't been keeping up with my reading. And of course I went, of course he hasn't been keeping up. Um and 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 as it turned out, I really value education because as you and I know in this business that's what we get hired for is to be thought leaders, trusted advisors. And uh frankly, 
that didn't play out well. He was not a learner and was not going to change. And it lasted about two months. Yeah, no, no. If you if you uh, need people who are going to learn and keep growing, uh, not reading any books ever is is definitely a bad sign. And by the way, you're you're not alone. Hiring people is difficult, even with my expertise in facial coding. Yes, sometimes you just you're in a hurry. You want to get this, you know, hired done with. You you look past something you shouldn't look past. I remember one guy. I said to myself, "This is like the cold. He's smart, but he's like the coldest fish I've been around in a long time." Yes. And it sure proved to be true. Speaking of value system, because I, I value warmer people than colder people, I have to admit. Um, what are some of your non-negotiables in business? You, you bring that up as you know, you have to look carefully at those hires and, and not try to violate your own values. You know, a couple of them are, and probably because I am from the Midwest, is work ethic. And I don't think it's old fashioned. I think it's in fashion and in any economy, or if you're going to be masterful, you've got to put the work in. I would say the second is the learning, which we've talked about. And the third is humility, because I think humility plays out in a lot of ways. I think a humble person, you know, you can still be very confident, but a humble person is a likable person. But a humble person is also a learner because they don't think they know it all and they're willing to learn from others and continue on that path of improvement. Yeah, no, those those answers, those criteria make total sense to me. And I admit to having the same work ethic bias. You, you know, we kind of talking about the hiring process, but obviously you've done a lot of roles. You've been a salesperson, a sales manager, a sales trainer. Over the course of your career, uh, you mentioned the term in the book, ghosts, that there are certain regrets one might have. Looking past that particular hire, the guy who didn't get, find time to read books, is there another regret that's maybe of value to listeners regarding what you've learned on the job as a sales manager or sales trainer over and above the hiring part? Yes. And I, you know, I'm always one that's very careful to use the word regret so you don't fall back into victim mentality blame. So that's not sure. where I'll be coming sure. from with this answer. But I would say if I you know, had to write that letter to my 20-year-old self, I would say, <laughs> get very active about seeking out mentors. And um, because I think I could have shortcut some of my learnings and expanded my my horizons. So I, I would say that was the one regret. I don't even think it was an area where I didn't know what I didn't know, that there were people out there willing and able to help. Uh, I think that's a wonderful answer. I, I actually would have the same regret. There, there's a lot of value to getting close to a, a mentor you can learn from who, if they're generous, might you know open some doors for you and create opportunities and speed things along. But you know the, the wisdom that they will have from, from having been there. Yeah, that, that's fabulous. Let's move over to the difficulty of, you know, making the sale. Um, you mentioned, and I think this is great that, you know, you use the staff meetings, not just to go through, you know, a status report on the pipeline. And I've actually sat in a couple of those meetings at companies and they're, they're painfully boring and not terribly productive. I yes. love the fact that you're talking in your book about really making those learning opportunities, not just a, you know, ho-hum meeting. Buyer personas. I, I love that term. Uh, so I thought about it before this interview, I want to throw out three that come to my mind and I'm curious how you might coach someone on your staff to try to sell to that type of person. Uh, obviously, you know, using your experience, using your EQ insights and so forth. So I'm going to run through three of them. Let's just take each in turn, if you don't mind. Okay. Someone who, you know, you go to the meeting, you're, you're on Colleen's staff and, or you train this person to go out and they, they face the poker face person, the person who just doesn't give anything away in the meeting, flat affect, just kind of sitting there like a bump on a log. How do you move that person? How do you connect 
that kind of person? Well, I think the first thing, when you've got somebody that is processing information entirely different than you, it's very easy to start getting emotionally charged, right? And telling yourself stories. You know, this person's not interested. I'm wasting my time. Why do they even bother coming to the meeting? And so anytime you've got somebody like that in the room, I always contend you've got to work on the stories you're telling yourself, which creates emotions, which those negative emotions can affect your ability to execute the right selling skills. So that would be the number one, check your stories. And then number two at some point in the room, if you really feel like the person isn't engaged, they're not buying into anything you're saying, it's okay to call the quote elephant in the room. And that might be to gently say, hey, Dan, I'm getting the feeling that what we're talking about today isn't quite hitting the mark. And I'll take responsibility for that. Where do you suggest we head the conversation? And at that point, you put the burden of the conversation on the person not engaging. Now, the person simply might be thinking, I have seen more than one person, they are a thinker and they're not, um, and you're an expert on this, they're not paying attention to their facial expressions. So they have no idea that they're sending that message off to everyone else in the room. So those might be a couple of tactics. Okay. And it's true. You know, the more we think, actually, the less we feel. Uh, we're not very good at being in two channels at once. Um, so kind of what I hear from that is don't panic and, right. uh, you know, put the other person, maybe not on the spot, but try to get them to join in the conversation a bit more. Uh, let's move on to a second type. This is what I'll call the, the nitpicker, the person who, you know, finally you maybe move to the proposal stage or you're trying to explain how your process works. And they just keep finding other questions, other potential problems that they have to pick at. How do you deal with someone like this who just seems to be slowing the progress down to molasses? It goes back to don't panic again, right? Watch the stories. But the other thing is when you like to look at the root cause of a nitpicker, this might be a high analytical, a high perfectionist. And when you study the emotion of that type of person, it's fear, not scaredy cat fear, fear of making the wrong decision. So instead of, you know, going through the hoop jumping, answering question after question, you might stop and simply ask one question of this prospect. Hey, I, I get the feeling there's something you're very concerned about, worried about that we're not covering. However, I'm not sure what that is. Can we stop and talk about that for a minute? So you address the real problem, which is the fear of making the wrong decision. Maybe your company's not branded. Uh, you're, you're perceived as too small, too big. And so I think that can move the conversation another way. Okay. So we, we've dealt so far with the non-affect, the person who's not showing emotion, the person who's showing fear. Let me jump a completely different direction. The, the glad hander, the person who's all happy and bubbly, but somehow you feel like maybe this is moving too fast and a lot of hot air and no real substance. So that again, it all goes back to emotion management. You're getting caught up in the enthusiasm. And I've seen salespeople sure. who have uh, received great sales training. They've got the questioning model, the qualifying model. So they skip over the qualifying steps, right? And then they end up writing a practice proposal because this person was so enthusiastic about your product or service. So I would say there, slow down to speed up and check. I still need to run a diagnostic call and not get caught up in my prospect's enthusiasm and glad handing for my product or service. So a lot of this you'll hear and see from my perspective really goes back to self-awareness and emotion management. Sure. And I had to ask the last one because I remember fairly early in my career running my company, which meant I was the salesperson. 
having what I thought was going to be a nice order in Dallas that kept getting bigger and bigger, but wasn't quite happening. And then one time I called and the guy had left. I, I don't think he had any intention or any uh, right. authority to ever close the deal, actually. And uh, I was early enough in all of this that I, I didn't quite pick up the, the signals. And, uh, and, and you, yeah, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. Well, I, I had a mentor and this was somebody in this business. And he looked at me and he said, let me tell you something. The faster they want the deal, the least likely they're going to do it. And I didn't understand it at the time. And what he was coaching me on was, you know, don't get so caught up in the enthusiasm that you don't run your sales process. Sure. And and that begs my next question, because you said there's at least, uh, you have to be careful about times where you need to disqualify an opportunity. Uh, I'm curious, uh, a situation in your career or that you know of on your staff, uh, as someone who disqualified an opportunity and what was actually said to the person besides, you know, forget it, I'm, I'm cutting, you know, I'm going to cut and run here. Well, you know, I've had, I'll go way, way back when I was a, a salesperson and I did not disqualify because I didn't even know that you could do that. Because remember back in the day, and I still think this happens, you were taught that there's some way to convince this person. And I can still remember the woman's name. I probably shouldn't say it today. She was, <laughs> she, was a, she was a coach at a school and she was always very gracious about meeting with me. And after four years in a row, I finally just quit showing up. So I did not have the assertive conversation to say, hey, I really get the feeling you're very, very happy with your current vendor. And at this point, there's probably nothing I could say or do that would convert the business. Is that fair? So I just kind of bailed, right? Which, you know, I would rather probably apply the assertive conversation. I will tell you, Dan, I just had a call on Friday where I disqualified a prospect and it was a referred person, a person that was referred to me, but she was not willing to engage in a conversation. And at that point, I know for my criteria, kind of like you, who you do good work with, warm people, this was not, this was just going to be if the if the relationship progressed, it was going to be an interrogation, not a cooperative investigation of really what's the right outcomes that we're both going to try and help you reach. So that was a 20-minute call where I simply said, hey, I think right now we're probably a better fit for this size company than your company. And she quickly agreed. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, uh, the gut, the stomach is literally called the mini brain because we have a lot yes. of sensitive nerve endings there and we should we should pay attention to them. Uh, Absolutely. They can really help us out. So we both know, uh, being veterans of this field, that uh, you can get price as an objection. And sometimes it's true. And in other cases, it's not true. It's both ability and willingness to pay. And sometimes it's the willingness to pay that's actually at stake. So let's talk about hidden objections. Uh, What are ways to flush them out? Uh, What are some of them that you think are most common? Uh, What's hardest to overcome? Well, as it relates to objections, my belief and the way we teach it um, in our courses is we don't teach overcoming objections. We actually teach to bring them up because if you do a whiteboarding session with a sales team and you ask the sales team to share with you all of the objections they hear, they can fill a whiteboard. But then when you ask the next two questions, that's where the conversation gets interesting. Because I will ask the rhetorical question, when would you like to know about these objections? Before you write a proposal or after? Everybody says before. Then I ask the second question, when do you find out about these objections? (laughs) Before you write a proposal or after? And everybody starts looking left and right. And the fact is, most of the time, I would say 90% of the time, we know the objections. 
we lack the empathy and assertiveness to bring up the objection and hold that sales conversation. Sure. Well, there's a wonderful line in a William Faulkner novel where he says, not only are the battles not won, they're not even fought. I mean, I, yes. I, it's so often true. We just, it can be in our personal relationships as well. We just back away from something we fear is going to be the third rail and we just don't want to go there. Uh, but, yes. we, but we need to, to make progress. And, uh, you know, that's where courage comes into this equation. It takes a lot of courage, as both of us know, to, to do sales. Uh, another difficulty one encounters in sales, there's an incumbent. Uh, I can tell you quite honestly of a meeting I once held in Toronto where I pushed too hard to get the incumbent displaced. And I mm -hmm. knew it because the guy's lips pressed together really hard, so hard there was a bulge below the middle of the lower lip. And I went, <laughs> oops. And I tried the rest of the meeting to undo the damage, could not do it. Uh, my email, my phone calls went unanswered. Uh, you know, it was over and out situation. So, you know, there is more times than not, there's going to be an incumbent. What's your single best tip on how to work that dynamic? Well, one of the things I've seen that salespeople often don't include in their pre-call planning is really studying the gap in the competitor's offering. And so by uncovering a gap, you never go in and disparage. I think everyone listening today has, has learned that lesson. But if you can artfully, with a well-crafted value proposition, point out the gap in the competitor's offering, but keep it neutral. You're not forcing them to change. You're pointing out a gap and then having a conversation around that gap. So that's called you know, creating a value proposition. And I find a lot of salespeople actually don't think about doing it or don't know how to do it to point that gap out. And then I would say the second thing is what we've talked about today, Dan. There is a fear of changing, even if they know your company can do a better job. So move the conversation to what would be your biggest worry point here? validate. If I were you, I'd be worried the perceived hassle factor. We're a small company. You've been working with a big vendor. We're a big company. You've been working with a smaller, nimble company. So again, it goes back to some of that unspoken objection and bring up the unspoken objection. Okay. That makes total sense to me. Uh, let's move over to, to staff. Um, you know, you're trying to help someone improve. They've maybe got indeed a little something they need to work on. Uh, you mentioned at one point, and I really like this, that people have stories they tell about themselves. And unfortunately, some of those stories are disabling stories, why they think they can't succeed. What's a story that you've helped someone basically untell about themselves? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Had a few of those. So I have had more than one young salesperson say, I am so young and I'm calling on a senior executive, their belief system, the story is they will not take me seriously. So what I've done in that case is I don't tell anymore because people believe their own data. I ask a coaching question, kind of a, a paradigm shifting question. And I will ask this young seller, do you know of a gentleman? What's his name? What's his name? Oh, yeah, yeah. That guy named Mark Zuckerberg. How <laughs> old was he when he started Facebook? And they start laughing and they say 20 something. I said, yeah. And do you think he took himself seriously, uh, which made him take uh, the prospect, take him seriously? And so by asking just that simple question, how old was Zuckerberg? they start realizing you can have success at any age. You can be taken seriously at any age if you take yourself seriously. 
Okay. Yeah. Comparisons. Uh, it's a little implicit storytelling. Yes. Um, best failures. Uh, certainly we've, we've witnessed these. I like that turn of phrase also in your book. What, what's the best failure that you might be able to talk to that you've either personally experienced or, or witnessed or someone you were uh, coaching, training, uh, brought up for you? Wow. There has been a few of those. Um, I would say on a, on a very, very personal note, um, I went through a divorce in my 30s and that was a wake-up call. And so there was a lot of things that I needed to take responsibility for, make some shifts in my life. And then thankfully, I've uh, been in a very, very happy marriage for 21 years. So I am somewhat grateful for a failure that I certainly didn't put on the goal board there. I would say on the professional level, it is sometimes lacking the coaching skills that I talk about in the book. And that is what motivated me to write this book because there were times I lacked empathy in my coaching, even though I actually on paper score very high in empathy. So as a manager, I could be a great problem solver, but I was forgetting to demonstrate empathy before I gave advice. And in some cases that, um, made some of the sellers that were working for me very discouraged without me knowing that. Okay. Well, my, my father-in-law, in fact, started his career as a salesperson and his first territory was Montana and Western North Dakota. So that, that tells you that he was a starting, starting salesperson. That's not usually the easiest territory to cover, particularly come February. Uh, but he used to have the same things. My wife will sometimes say that her, her father loves to step and say, here's the solution. And, went, and she has to stop him and say, but I want to tell you about the problem and how it feels first. Then we can yes. move to the solution. But I, I need a little love. I need a little empathy. Uh, you know, don't be quite so efficient in, in doing yes, all of yes. this. And, and so I can have what looks like this armor and no one knows that I can absolutely feel your pain. But in my desire to get rid of your pain, my methodology was wrong. The intent was good. Sure. Let's go back to, to price because uh, obviously you're going to have staff comes back to you or people in training say, sure. yeah, but it all comes down to, to price in the end and we're, we're in this battle of lowest price wins. You talk and you need to talk, and I, I did this in my business. I really wanted to sell on, on value, but getting someone who's accustomed, uh, you know, a prospect who's accustomed to essentially buying on price or they've got a set budget amount and it's lower than what you're trying to sell your offer to, What's your advice for, you know, selling on, on value as opposed to selling on price? So when I hear a seller say I've lost on price, there's two immediate questions I ask. The first question is, should you have been there in the first place? Because we absolutely know business models are built differently. And the standard one people to give a quick comparison is the Nordstrom model versus the Costco model, Right. So if you are calling on a Costco customer, but your business model is built on the Nordstrom value, there is no way you're going to sell that prospect. They are a transactional prospect. They either don't need or value what you need. So that's the first one. Should you have been there in the first place? And then the second is really doing some healthy reality testing. Take a look at the sales call and did you truly uncover the real problem, not the presenting problem, but the real business problem? And with that, did you un understand and uncover what's the strategic implication if they don't get this problem solved? What's the financial implication if they don't get this problem solved? And what's the personal implication? 
if this problem is not solved. And if you missed any one of those three, you probably didn't demonstrate value in your conversation with that prospect. Okay, that makes sense to me. And I, I like the thoroughness of the approach. Um, again, you know, checking your stories, but also checking your facts, checking the vulnerability of the prospect. You mentioned it maybe not be in relationship to, <clears throat> excuse me, price, or maybe it is. Uh, you mentioned a lot of books in your book. Uh, one is a book that's been recommended to me, in fact, called Never Split the Difference. I'd be curious if there's one or two takeaways from that book that, uh, you know, pertain to anything we've discussed so far, including trying to sell on full margin. Well, it was interesting. The reason I put picked up the book, Dan, is I, number one, heard about it. And number two, I was, I was in the bookstore. I opened up the, the chapter on tactical empathy. Now, for your listeners today, this is a book that's written by a former FBI hostage negotiator. And I'm sitting there looking at this book, having this <laughs> dissonance going, how is a hostage negotiator talking about tactical empathy? So why I liked the book is I believe you really got to the core of good negotiation which is emotion management, as he refers to tactical empathy, and then there's the skill set. And so often what I find in life and in business, people are working on the hard skills of selling, but they forget about these soft skills. So that's the reason I enjoyed the book is because he really did a nice job of blending both in a hard skill situation, negotiation skills. Okay. So speaking of blending, and you just did the, the perfect thing that leads into my next question, I was curious after all this time and all this practice and practice can make perfect, how you take learnings from your personal life over to your business life and business life to personal life. Because as Daniel Pink mentioned in, in his book about selling, we're all salespeople. You know, we are, we are trying to win people over in all sorts of facets, whether it's, you know, let's go here for vacation. Let's do this. You know, here's how I want the softball team lineup to look. So there are so many situations. How have you taken these insights and all of this wealth of experience in sales and allowed it to inform and improve uh, your performance and interaction with people in all aspects of your life. So I would say some of the principles, whether it's business or personal, they do apply. For example, assertiveness, the ability to state what you need nicely, right? So in your personal life, I've seen people, let's say they're in a relationship and they can start turning into victims, complaining that their spouse or partner is this lousy person. But if you study the situation a little bit closer, it may be indeed that the person that is complaining simply lacks the ability to state what they need nicely. And when you lack the ability to state what you need nicely, you turn into a doormat, you get very resentful, and that ends up being a very contentious relationship. I mean, that can be just one area. I think emotion management in any relationship you have, which is really having the patience not to say what you want to say right away, but rather taking the pause, taking a breath, asking yourself the question, am I fighting for the need to be right or am I fighting for the need to get it right? So if you just take a couple of those examples, it's going to make for a happier life, a better life, a more fulfilled life. Okay. So before we close, I want to give you a chance to go any place we, we haven't got to so far from your, your very good book. Uh, it could be a, a story, a particular uh, lesson, uh, anything you want to cover. I want to throw open that opportunity for you. So I think for me to go anywhere here, uh, 
I would suggest everyone today maybe take some time to think about those people that have affected them positively in, in their lives. I know for me, I was able to share a story from a mentor I had at Varsity, Klein Boyd. And, you know, I was probably too young to know the good mentorship I was receiving there. And so part of the reason I was able to enjoy sharing a story about him in the book, Dan, was to give credit to what a smart, smart individual he was. But really what made him a great leader was the EQ, knowing how to manage each and every person a little bit differently. So I'd say today, you know, it's a Tuesday, maybe wherever you are in the world here, uh, reach out and thank somebody that's uh, helped you get to where you are. It's going to make a big difference. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so I think we're going to wrap it up here. I want to thank you very much for having been my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 19, Using EQ to Lead a Great Sales Team with my guest, Colleen Stanley. To check out other episodes or my books or appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Colleen, feel free to email it to me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please give it a review or a rating or both on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we spend a good deal of time, both in the conversation and in the book, talking about hiring right, I'm going to end with this comment from former Miami Dolphins football coach Don Shula, who said, the start is what stops most people. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.